and welcome to Maybe Today Matinee, a podcast about all things film before you were born. I'm Monica. I'm David. This month, we're watching horror movies for Halloween. And today, we're talking about Kaneto Shindo's 1964 film, Onibaba. samurai walking through a field of high grass are ambushed by a pair of unnamed women who murder them, stripping them of their possessions and dropping their bodies into a hidden pit. They sell the stolen items to a man named Ushi, who deals in stolen weapons as Japan is in a state of civil war and there is a lack of arms and armor. The pair of women return to their hut, and we learn they are a mother-in-law and her daughter-in-law, who have turned to murder and robbery to survive since they are not able to farm in the wartime environment. A soldier named Hachi wanders into their hut, stating that the women's son-slash-husband is dead. They feed him, but are resentful that he has returned alone. Hachi begins to lust after the younger woman, staring at her as she eats or does the laundry. The older woman warns him to stay away and also tells her daughter-in-law to watch out for him. Later, Hachi explicitly invites the younger woman to visit him at night, and though she seems to rebuff him, that night she does sneak out of the hut, racing through the tall grass to Hachi's abode. She tells Hachi that she runs because the grass scares her. The mother-in-law follows the younger woman and sees that she is sleeping with Hachi. Afraid that she will not be able to survive on her own if her daughter-in-law leaves her for a man, the mother-in-law confronts Hachi and begs him to leave her daughter-in-law alone until the war ends. Hachi refuses. The mother-in-law then tries to scare her daughter-in-law with stories about a punitive afterlife for sinners, particularly those who engage in extramarital affairs. But the young woman says she doesn't believe in an afterlife. One night, while the young woman is at Hachi's house, a wandering samurai literally slices his way into the women's hut, scaring the mother-in-law. He is wearing a mask, but says he is a very handsome man who needs directions out of the field of grass to get to Kyoto. The older woman tells him to head due north, but he insists on her guiding him through the grass. As they walk, the older woman asks him to show her his face, as she is curious to see a man so handsome, but he refuses. The older woman decides to guide him towards the hidden pit, which he falls into. The older woman lowers herself into the pit with a rope as the man is breathing his last gasps. Surrounded by the skeletons of the women's other victims, she pulls off the mask to find the man's face disfigured. She steals his possessions. One night, the older woman says she is going alone to Ushi's to sell off some arms. As soon as she leaves the hut, the younger woman leaves too and begins sprinting toward Hachi's house. She stops dead in her tracks when a demon, whose face looks much like the mask of the murdered samurai, rises out of the grass, and she turns around and runs home. When the mother-in-law arrives home, she finds the younger woman huddled in a corner of the hut. The following night, the demon once again appears when the young woman tries to run to Hachi's house, and she goes home. By the third night, Hachi is becoming restless, wondering why the young woman hasn't come to see him. By now, she believes demons are real and has decided to stay home. One night during a rainstorm, the couple's desire to see each other has become so great that they both run outside. The young woman encounters the demon, but rather than running away, calls for Hachi and is able to meet him as the demon disappears. The next day, Hachi is murdered in his hut by a wandering hungry soldier. 
Hachi's fate, unbeknownst to her, the young woman comes home and finds the demon lurking in the corner of her hut. But the demon reveals itself to actually be her mother-in-law, who says she has been wearing a mask all along, but now is unable to get it off in punishment for her actions. The young woman makes her promise to let her see Hachi whenever she wants and tries to help her take the mask off. The mask, however, is stuck and painful to remove. The young woman finally hammers it off with a mallet, and the older woman's face is disfigured. Thinking the older woman is a real demon, the younger woman races out of the hut, leaping across the pit, and the movie ends as the older woman tries to leap across the pit as well, insisting she is human. David, how did you feel about this movie? This was your first time seeing it, right? Uh, yes, it was. And I think this is this is the first film from uh, Shindo that I've seen. So this is uh, all totally new to me. Uh, I loved it. I thought this thing was fantastic. Oh, I'm pleased to hear it. Um, uh, were were you? I mean, you don't need to get into detail at this point. But had did you had you heard of this director before? Uh, no, I had actually I'd never heard the the name or kind of anything about this. This um this period of of Japanese cinema, other than maybe some Kurosawa films, is is kind of a a, a black hole <laughs> yes. in a field of grass. A bit of a black <laughs> hole in a field of grass for me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the reason I picked this movie is that I think uh, Japan has been really influential in the area of horror film, with a lot of its movies getting exported to other countries and um, some of them getting remade uh, into English by Hollywood. So I really wanted to investigate an an older film. So I'm going to talk a little bit about horror film in Japan just to give a brief history about it. Some people regard this particular movie as... The first example of Japanese horror, although like that's debatable, and I know in our previous horror theme we discussed what counts as a horror movie and what doesn't, so you can go back to listen to, I believe it was Son of Frankenstein, where we had that discussion. But I do think this movie is a horror movie. Horror film in Japan rose to prominence after World War II, and in the early period, a lot of the movies uh, drew their influence from No and Kabuki traditional theater, um, and this movie is no exception, and we'll get into that detail in a little bit. But other early Japanese horror movies were the kaiju monsters. Those are like the Godzilla, you know, monster movies. Early films also use ghost stories as source material very often. So if you know the trope, I guess, of the long-haired girl often with the hair covering her face that you see in a lot of uh, Japanese and also Korean movies, they've been using that in cinema for a long time. East Asian ghosts are often characterized as being uh, women or girls. But more recently in Japanese horror, there's been a lot of emphasis on on haunted house stories and also family dramas. Although I think Onibaba is actually a really good example of a kind of family drama horror story. I wonder, David, what your experience has been with Japanese horror movies. So for the most part, I've, I've interacted with them, as you were saying, in the context of like their American remakes, right? So uh, I don't know that people really remember how big of an impact The Ring had when that um, that remake came out back in, I believe, 2002. Uh, Gore Verbinski remade the Japanese film Ringu as The Ring in the U.S., and that was... 
I remember a really big thing, you know, when I was in in middle school, I guess, uh, that it was, you know, it was so creepy. It was so outstanding. Um, as a side note, I've recently rewatched the remake. It's really not that great. Um, it's terrifying. It's so scary. It doesn't hold I up. I do not agree. It is not that good. Anyway. <laughs> I, ha- I had to make the cat watch it with me. <laughs> But yeah, so that's been most of my exposure. So uh, because that that remake came out, uh, I remember watching the uh, the original, like renting that at Blockbuster. This is really dating us. And also, we I believe you were there as well. We watched Ringu two, the sequel to the um, the original Japanese one. And I remember that being one of the most terrifying films I've ever seen. And I've never gone back to rewatch it, so I don't really know if it holds up in that way. But I really have this very strong visceral memory of just being terrified. Other than that, I'd say maybe the biggest point of exposure for me to Japanese horror would be the uh, Takashi Miike film Audition, which was from the late 90s, I believe 98 or 99, which uh, was was actually very different, was not uh, kind of ghost-related or spiritually related and uh, was much more akin to kind of a weird mix of a romantic comedy slash like like kind of slow burn slasher but yeah that's kind of that's that's been my journey through um through japanese horror yeah um for me too i picked this movie out out of curiosity i don't have any experience with um japanese horror in this period otherwise um but Watching this and reading through a lot of the research, it looks like there's a lot of good stuff to see. I did just want to mention um, to uh, solidify the point about Japanese horror being incredibly influential. um, Anyone who's seen the film Cabin in the Woods, which was from, I think, like 2012, somewhere around there, which was this kind of uh, it was like a horror meta horror film uh, that functioned as both kind of a straightforward horror film but also a a meta text about the horror genre but like a a pretty big chunk of that film is referencing the uh the tropes of like 90s and 2000s japanese horror in particular with the like ghostly schoolgirl with the you know the long black hair covering her face so yeah so it's really certainly made inroads into american cinema as well oh was that a good movie cabin in the woods uh, yeah, I, um, I haven't seen it in probably since it came out, but it's um, it's like funny and scary, which uh, is uh, very few movies effectively do both of those at the same time. So I would it, any horror fans out there, if you haven't seen it, you probably have. But if you haven't, I would highly recommend it. I'll have to check that out, too, <clears throat> if the cat's interested. Of course. <laughs> I also wanted to mention a little bit about the history and mythology behind this particular film. So the story is roughly based on a Shin Buddhist parable about a girl who goes to a temple to pray. And in the parable, and there are different versions of the parable, but roughly what happens is that there's a girl who goes to the temple to pray and her mother, I believe in the parable it's her mother, gets annoyed that she's going to pray rather than doing chores at home. So the mother takes a mask and wears it and, just like in the movie, you know, jumps out and scares the girl on her way to the temple. And according to one version of the story, the girl freaks out just like in the movie and runs home. In another version, she's not scared and she goes to the temple to pray anyway. Eventually, the mother is discovered and 
in one version, the girl like prays for her and, you know, everything's okay. They pray together. In another version, the girl prays for her, but the mask comes off with, you know, disfiguring her face the way it does in the movie. So there's different versions, but that's basically where the story comes from. The name of this movie, Onibaba, is actually a type of demon in Japanese folklore. Um, there are these demons called Kijo, which are female demons. And an Onibaba is like an old woman demon, basically. Um, and the legends say that these Kijo are normal human women who become oni, which are demons, who become demons uh, because of their own resentment and because of their own bad karma, basically, which is kind of what happens in this film. The mask that you actually see in the movie is a mask from no theater. And in no theater, the actors will wear the mask for the entire performance. And this particular mask is called a hanya, and it represents a jealous female demon, which is basically what the mother-in-law becomes in this movie. Um, commentators have also remarked on the fact that the lighting inside the hut where the women live is very rep reminiscent of kabuki theater. So that's the way that a lot of influence from more traditional culture has been brought into this movie. In terms of history, these the events in the movie take place during the mid-14th century, during something called the Nambokucho period, which was a period of about 50 years when there were two, basically, generally speaking, two emperors who were fighting over Japan. That's the context for this movie. So in cinematic terms, what was happening at this time, so the movie came out in 1964, was the Japanese New Wave. And it was rather explicitly modeled after the French Nouvelle Vague. And it emerged after the end of the American occupation, of course. America is still in Japan, but after uh, the Americans handed over control of the country back to the Japanese. And when the Americans had been in power, they had a system of censorship that affected what Japanese people could or couldn't put into their films. When that ended, they were much freer to put what they wanted into their movies. I wonder, David, what influence of the Nouvelle Vague you see in Onibaba? First off, I want to um, uh, mention some some similarity. If anyone's a fan of, of Spanish cinema, and in particular, Almodovar, who uh, directed Talk to Her and uh, Broken Embraces and uh, a million other wonderful films. I think it's perhaps a little bit of a strained comparison, but he was kind of coming up, uh, starting his career towards the end of, of fascists like Franco Era's Spain. Uh, and so a lot of his films are very deliberately sexual because of the end of that that censorship. And so I think we see a, a similar thing here just to kind of tie those two um, uh, national cinemas together. In terms of, of similarities here with the French New Wave, so this episode won't have come out yet because we're recording kind of an odd order, but we cover, we're going to cover uh, Breathless, the Jean-Luc Godard film from 1960, the French New Wave film. And if you've seen that, I think you can certainly see some similarities here, but this film is, is I would argue, much more akin to kind of the West Bank of the French New Wave uh, in terms of it kind of having a more literary, like kind of slower, uh, heavily symbolic approach. The main comparisons between 
specifically Onibaba and like the Kaidu Cinema Group from the French New Wave, I would argue would be that this film, Onibaba, kind of plays with time in a similar way that the French New Wave did. It doesn't jump around as much and we're not seeing like, you know, every every shot has a jump cut in it. It's nothing like that. But we do see a fairly quick progression of time. There's kind of a cut from like it's the day and then suddenly it's the night and all these things are happening and there's not really a lot of like explicit transition from these different periods. So I think the the editing certainly is is more a uh, new wave esque or, or avant-garde. And I think it's it's odd and can't exactly defend why this reminded me of the French New Wave, but there's one sequence in which the um, the two women, our two protagonists, and Hachi are all kind of on the on the bank of the river, and uh, the women are are doing laundry, and Hachi was fishing, and then they see two samurai fighting, and they're they're kind of out in the river fighting, and we get a close up of each of the three protagonists, so Hachi the older woman and the younger woman. And it's situated in such a way. So the close-up of Hachi is of his right, or pardon, of his left eye. The close-up of the older woman is of her entire face, like both of her eyes. And the close-up of the younger woman is of her right eye. I, I can't speak a whole lot to traditional Japanese cinema, but in the context of kind of like traditional filmmaking, uh, from Hollywood at least, this is a very irregular shot. In particular, since this is a film that doesn't have a lot of like extreme close-ups like that. And so I think that kind of audacious uh, directorial choice uh, is very reminiscent of what the French New Wave was doing in terms of like kind of breaking rules. You mean not that it was in this film that they weren't necessarily copying some something that they did in the French new wave, but just in that it was being innovative the way they were in the French new wave. Sure. Definitely. Um, but I think in also in some specific techniques, I think you can see similarities. So if, uh, if anyone's seen Alan Renee's, um, last year at Marion Bod, uh, I think a lot of the shots of grass here where we have these kind of slow pans over the field and there's not a particular plot event happening. We're just kind of setting the mood. It's very reminiscent of Rene when he's got the tracking shots through the mansion uh, that are very, you know, very long takes and very labor drawing your attention to the environment. Uh, and in that way, I think it's more similar to the, in particular, the West Bank of the new wave, of the French new wave, I should say. Well, let's talk about the director here in particular. Kaneto Shindo had a really prolific and long career. He lived to 100. He was born in 1912 and died in 2012. Um, his, I think it was his last movie, uh, came out in 2010, actually. Because of his generation, he made a lot of films, especially in the early years in the 50s, about Hiroshima um, and then later human sexuality and gender po politics. Um, some of his other movies include Children of Hiroshima, The Naked Island, Kuroneko, and many, many others. He specifically said that the disfigured faces that you see in Onibaba on the samurai and the older woman after they take off the mask were inspired by victims of Hiroshima and the injuries that, that they suffered. 
Something that I thought was interesting was that the cast in this movie, everybody except for Jitsuko Yoshimura, who plays the younger woman, everybody else was a part of Shindo's acting troupe, who basically appeared again and again in his movies. I wonder, David, if you knew what the advantages might be of working with a regular group of performers and what other directors you're familiar with who also employ this method. So first off, uh, for a little bit of context, I think this is something that we don't see nearly as much as was seen in the uh, kind of the golden age of Hollywood, right? And there are a lot of business reasons for that, principally that studios no longer have, you know, decades-long contracts with actors, with directors. So there's no longer this specific uh, financial tie that is binding all of these professionals together. So as a result, we tend to see more actors kind of floating around from, you know, different directors, directors working with different people. One of the advantages, or it's hard to say it's specifically an advantage, but one of the things that like I really enjoy about watching directors who work with the same actor repeatedly is that you can kind of see how both the director and the actor are growing over time. And it's very interesting to see what binds them together. So uh, as a relatively recent example, um, I think I've mentioned it on this podcast before, but I'm a big, big fan of David Cronenberg, who is most famous for his uh, 1980s kind of body horror, science fiction horror films who more recently kind of starting in the 90s began to to back away from that and started doing more like gang dramas and then and then just kind of uh psychological dramas he had a working relationship it was relatively brief but over the course of two films he worked with robert pattinson who's uh, most famous as edward from the twilight series and i think it's really fascinating because the first film they did together cosmopolis robert pattinson is this kind of hyper wealthy like trust fund kid who is riding around in the back of the limo during the uh, Occupy Wall Street movement, right? During the kind of the general unrest in the states over the injustice, economic injustice everyone was facing. And Pattinson delivers this, this really wonderful, like cold, icy performance that really carries us through the whole film. The following film he did uh, was called Maps to the Stars, which was this kind of... Um, semi-spiritual ghost story satire of Hollywood. As a side note, that that movie is is incredibly intense. I've only seen it the one time, and I really have to prep myself to watch it again. But one of the funny things that Cronenberg does is he casts Pattinson as a limo driver in that following film, right? Like, totally inverting that, totally changing the actor's class situation. Uh, And so I think it creates this kind of unique space working with the same actor, particularly what role you're casting them in. It creates this unique space where you can make kind of meta commentary about larger things and larger themes because you're using essentially the same face, the exact same person and moving them over different stories. As a quick side note, Abmodovad, who I had, Reference recently, he's also worked with Antonio Vanderas, and their their collaborations kind of died down a little bit once Vanderas started getting more like Hollywood acting roles. Um, 
kind of around when when he was in Desperado and he he became this kind of like action hero type, right? So he started getting cast a lot in the U.S. Um, but they did a film called Atame or Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down in the late 80s, early 90s. And that was their last collaboration until they made another film in 2011 called The Skin I Live In. And... Banderas, again, having aged some 21 years between those two performances, it's very interesting because in Atame, he is playing a, a kind of psychotic, patriarchal, just nightmare. Uh, and then in The Skin I Live In, he's got a much more reserved acting style, right? Like he's he's playing it much closer and much smaller. But then over the course of the film, he kind of reveals himself to be, again, this this like nightmare of patriarchy. And I think it's very, again, seeing the two films together, you can kind of derive further meaning from that dual casting. I remember in our first month, we watched Yojimbo. And as I recall, I think they also had a similar situation where a lot of those same actors worked again and again in uh, Kurosawa's films. I wondered if any of that it was kind of an outgrowth, or even the studio system, was any of it an outgrowth of having theater troops from the age of just plays and where you would have maybe a group of actors who went from city to city performing uh, you know, the same show. Uh, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't say for sure, but I think that's a really good guess. Like you're saying with theater troops, uh, this idea of kind of a band of actors who are frequently working together has historically been a thing. And so I think everyone, everyone working together, you kind of only get better by virtue of, of frequent collaboration. Right. So I think it makes sense that that's an outgrowth. And I, I guess an, another element, and this might be uh, specifically kind of more recent post golden age of Hollywood cinema, but we've certainly, I'm, I'm sure everyone has heard many nightmare stories about directors and uh, not just me too, but just in general, there's kind of this idea that like, oh, the business, like the business of art, we're artists and we're very hot tempered and that's how it is, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it, it winds up excusing a lot of very abusive behavior. So I, I sometimes wonder if part of it also isn't that, Actors who find a director who is perhaps more reasonable um, and not hot-headed or abusive or especially sexually abusive might be inclined to work with that same person again rather than take a risk on someone unknown. Or even in some cases, vice versa, right? If you, if for directors who have to deal with really hotshot actors. For sure. Um, the, the ones who who are, you know, professional to work with, will want to be worked with again and again, and probably actors who enjoy working with each other too, I don't know. What I wanted to talk about next um, for lack of a better word, was the symbolism in this film or the maybe significant objects that we see throughout the movie. Um, the first one was the no mask. And something that I thought was really interesting when I was researching this is that in no theater, when the actor wears the mask, they have that mask on for the entirety of the performance. So the really interesting thing about these masks is that they're meant 
to display different emotions depending on the context of what's going on in the play. So if you look at the mask, the Hanya mask that they use for this movie, it's really, really interesting because I think you can see how they use that method in the movie. So when the mother-in-law wears the mask to frighten her daughter-in-law in the field, that specter, right? It looks really scary. The mask is terrifying looking. Or or like when it pops out of the corner of the hut, it's very scary. But then when the mother-in-law can't get it off, suddenly you can read into those the same facial expression on the mask. You can read like a horrified look. I think it's really, really interesting. And for listeners, I would really recommend... If you haven't seen this movie, just Google Onibaba mask and you can see the mask and you can really see how different emotions can be interpreted from the way that uh, there's like this expression creased into its face. Um, And I just think that's super, super nifty. Some other things I noticed in this movie were the meat. So these these peasants are starving. And when they get either I don't remember, what was it like chicken or something? Um, It was some kind of bird. Yeah. Yeah, something. And then another time they were eating fish and another time they were eating a dog that they caught. Like they're eating so voraciously and the camera zooms in, especially on um, the younger woman when she's eating. In one of those early scenes when she's eating, I mean, first of all, obviously they're eating voraciously because they're starving. But also I think it parallels, you know, like the very carnal nature of this movie on multiple levels. There's the meat, but then there's also, you know, the sexual tension. And uh, Hachi is, you know, staring at her while she eats. I think that's the same scene that you're referring to when um, Hachi is actually being much more kind of seductive. The meat's kind of impaled on a stick and they're eating it and he's watching, watching the younger woman eat and he's kind of like licking at it in a very, you know, a very transparent sexual metaphor. But I thought it was really funny that she she doesn't really make eye contact with him and she kind of just keeps chowing down. I, I think it emphasized this idea that, like, she wasn't especially attracted to him. She was just in need of, like, kind of sexual release, right? Oh, 100%, because he's so gross, right? <laughs> when I was watching this movie before I really got into it and realized kind of what was going on. I was like, why does she like this guy? Oh, no, it's not really about him, right? <laughs> right. Um, anyway, <laughs> we we also have the grass, which I think functions almost like another character in this movie. We literally call them blades of grass, but the camera, like you mentioned earlier, zooms in on them a lot, and you can see how sharp they look. And, of course, the grass is also obfuscatory, right? Because walking through that field, you can't see more than, like, three feet in front of you because of how dense it is. There's also the crows, who you mostly see, who you mostly see hanging around the hole in the ground, and they're basically scavenging, right, on all the men that they've dumped to the bottom of that pit. And they're... I think they're they're kind of like the way that the women, um, and I guess Hachi as well, are basically scavengers. And to drive home that point, the older woman, the robe that she's wearing has a crab on the back, and the younger woman's robe has a scallop on the back. And both of these sea creatures are like literal bottom feeders um, in the ocean. So, And that's what these women are, right? They're just living on whatever they can... Um, grab onto because they're in such a def- desperate situation. You mentioned, David, that scene earlier where the, those two 
men fighting and they're in the swamp or the lake or whatever it is and they're asking for help but rather than helping them the two women in Hachi murder them right because they just they they need their possessions to sell off to feed themselves so there there are bottom feeders and we'll talk about that a little bit more later but I wonder David if you had any other interpretations for these symbols or if there were any other symbols in the movie that you identified well, um, I guess uh, the first one that comes to mind that you didn't mention is that uh, when the older woman first discovers that the younger woman and Hachi are having this this uh, kind of secretive affair, she's very, very clearly like sexually aroused. And she she runs from kind of she peers in on them in their hut uh, and they don't notice her. And then she kind of runs off. And she goes and hugs this tree that's like completely stripped of leaves. So it's a very, you know, it's a very obvious phallic symbol. You know, I don't really have a, a lot to comment on there, but I thought that was a, another moment in which this this film is very overtly sexual. One thing I wanted to add about when you mentioned the grass, I thought it was very interesting that after uh, the demons kind of start to become more of a plot presence, right? Like after the older woman meets the the kind of demon samurai and she starts scaring the younger woman. We continue to see the shots of the grass, but they, they kind of transform. And there's, I can't remember exactly when it happens, but there's one particular shot where we get the tops of the grass, uh, kind of the top, the grass. And then we can see a little bit of the sky and they, they uh, kind of intersperse a regular film with like a negative of the film so that the grass being kind of darker and the sky being lighter, those colors, those, those things are kind of reversed, right? And so we have a few brief frames of the grass being lighter, the, scar- the sky being darker. My interpretation of it was the grass had become flames. So we, we kind of, there's all this discussion between the older woman and the younger woman about like are there demons is there an afterlife and the older woman tries to scare off the younger woman saying that like oh well there is an afterlife and there's a hell and you know people burn forever and everything and then we get the shots of the grass kind of aflame so i think very deliberately were to to understand that like they are already in hell or perhaps purgatory as they had discussed right like these mm-hmm. horrible punishments for their actions these things are already happening this is the world they live in i know uh, i'm sorry to always ask you these kinds of questions but how do you interpret the events in this movie do you interpret them as supernatural or everything explainable by what could happen in real life well, so I think I'll probably give you the exact same answer I always give you, right? <laughs> Which is, I don't know that that's the point. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I would say that that honestly, it could veer kind of either way. And I think that that actually is the point. The idea that the, the events can be interpreted either as kind of lost souls who have been condemned versus like living people who are living through hardships. I think both of them are are in some ways equally hellish. Both interpretations are equally hellish. And I think that's kind of the idea that we're supposed to take from the film is that whether there is a specific supernatural interpretation or not is kind of irrelevant because the suffering of these people is very real and immediate. Yes, no, that's correct. 
<laughs> I just wondered if you thought there was an actual demon. <laughs> Maybe this is just training from like kind of more generic American horror films. But when she killed that demon, I thought for sure he was going to like pop up behind her and like chop her head off or something. Like I thought that was going to go so poorly. Oh, okay. So you said when she killed that demon, do you think, did you think that was a demon or just a, a samurai? Again, both. I think for the purposes of the film, since we're so focused, we're focused so tightly on kind of these uh, working class, like when you had, you made the comparison to the crows, like these scavengers who are just trying to survive on the peripheries of these, you know, these great battles waged by powerful people, whether it's a demon or not, he is a demon to them. Mm. We are going to come back to that. Okay. Um, before we get there, though, I wanted to talk really quickly about the nudity in this movie. So this film was one of the first Japanese films to show significant nudity. By this point, filmmakers were not uh, under the you know th- threat of censorship as far as that went. And, of course, this plot revolved very tightly around human sexuality. I, I have kind of a lot of questions here. I wonder if you could consider them together. Um, like generally, what do you think is the function of nudity in film? Where do we draw the line between function and gratuitousness? Because a lot of movies and TV get characterized as gratuitous if they show a lot of nudity. And then how do we feel about the extent of the nudity in this movie? Well, so, I mean, it's a very, that's a very complex question or series of questions. Uh, I I think you've keyed in on something really important. The impression that I think a lot of people have of nudity or sexuality in film is that it is gratuitous, right? Like it's placed specifically to titillate audiences. And the idea being that there is no other purpose, right? If it were, you know, if like a valid use of nudity would be in a scene to further a plot as opposed to just a scene of two characters having sex of like, you know, for example, James Bond having sex with the the Bond girl that appears in the film you're watching. Uh, and I think I want to push back on that a little bit because I think a lot of our ideas about this are informed by American puritanicalism uh, or, or American Pur- puritanity, puritanicalism. Do you know? Uh, I don't know. Okay. Puritanicalism sounds pretty cool, though. Uh, okay. <laughs> it's funny because there's, you know, there's kind of a lot of conversation about, like, sex versus violence in films and the idea that Americans specifically are more opposed to sex appearing in films, but, like, outrageous amounts of violence we we accept as being almost wholesome, right? Everyone's favorite movie is Die Hard, and God knows how many people die in that film, and, like, relatively graphically. And... I think when we we are willing to say that a sex scene in a film has no meaning much sooner than we are willing to say a scene of violence has no meaning. For example, action movies, like it's an entire genre that's based around the idea of on-screen violence and so rarely in the popular discourse is that characterized as being something that is pornographic which i think in some ways it is like i you know i love a lot of action movies but we don't really talk about it as being a supposed like gratuitous waste of time 
uh, because I don't, you know, you watch Stallone kill X number of people and you can argue, well, that's not part of the plot, but, oh, well, it's an action movie. You're there to watch him kill people. It's odd that we have the double standard for sexuality in films. That being said, I think there's kind of a clear distinction between something like, uh, I, I can't think of a specific example, but I think you'll see this in a lot of like PG-13 action movies where like, you know, Tom Cruise and Mission Impossible, he is hanging out with a girl and things get hot and heavy. And then we cut to the next scene and it's clearly implied that they have sex. Even though that might be less gratuitous and even a film like Onibaba, I think that's kind of a good example of something that doesn't serve all that much purpose, right? Other than like asserting that, oh, well, you know, the action protagonist is cool and he has sex with people and that's what makes him awesome. There's not really a lot of subtext in there. Whereas a film like this, to kind of bring it specifically to Onibaba, I think sex is such a big theme that it would, it would seem to me extraordinarily odd if there were not nudity here. So for example, there's a relatively recent independent horror film called The Girl on the Third Floor. And essentially it's a kind of ghost story that revolves around the protagonist's guilt and sexuality. And it ties it in with this like ghost history of this brothel. I watched that film and one of the strangest things to me was that they made, you know, like a 90, 100 minute film that was entirely about sexual themes and showed basically no nudity. It really, it really felt like a deliberate choice to avoid nudity for fear of being called gratuitous, but at the expense of like kind of thematic sharpness. Hmm. That's interesting. Do you think, oh, you think it was specifically because they were trying to avoid being called gratuitous? I, that would be my guess. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe the filmmakers feel differently, but that's kind of how it struck me. But then one other thing I want to mention, uh, because it's hard to have this conversation without mentioning this uh, for so long in Hollywood and it only barely exists now, there is not, has not really been a mechanism for actors and in particular actresses to address their concerns about like scenes of nudity within films. Because I think, you know, a lot of it kind of boils down to, well, the director, you know, wants the scene, wants you to be nude. And then are you going to tell your boss that you don't, want to do that right uh which i think is a very very upsetting so i think it's important to reference that as well that this has uh, nudity in film also has very real labor implications uh that need to be discussed as well right it's like i, I think about we hear so often how so-and-so actress won't do this, won't expose like this part of her body in this film or in this TV show. And it always like draws attention, but it's always because she is somebody who's so prominent, like such an in-demand actress that she can make these demands. But really everybody should be able to do that without always necessarily like losing their role because of it. Right. Right. Relatively recently, and I, I wish I had the article pulled up, it came out that HBO in particular was changing its practices in regard to nudity appearing in their like films or series. And what they were doing was appointing like a specific uh, point person, essentially, whom 
actors and like the talent could consult whom they could speak with in regards to specifically scenes of sexuality, scenes of nudity and kind of communicate their level of comfort, whether they wanted to do this thing or that thing, you know, show this body part or that body part. And then that person would serve as kind of their representation slash intermediary with the director, perhaps a writer, the higher up creative workers on set to create more of a like situation of negotiation and in particular to create a situation in which actors felt they could speak their minds without being like kind of directly attacked. And so I don't know that that's sufficient, but that's certainly a first step uh, that had been basically unheard of in film up till that point. You know, again, talking about labor in Hollywood, labor in film, I think this is a really important issue that needs to be addressed. When I saw Onibaba, I I couldn't help but feel that some scenes were gratuitous, particularly with the two women when they go to bed at night. They're lying down topless, basically. And, like, I get it. It's hot. It's it, it's supposed to be very hot in the movie. Evidently, during filming, it was very hot. But it still seemed like, okay, like, what? <laughs> um, but it does make sense, I think, with what you say, that this movie is so explicitly about human sexuality that maybe that just kind of adds to the ambiance. One thing, though, is that that makes me a little bit uncomfortable is that the actress um, who was playing the younger woman, Jitsuko Yoshimura, evidently at the time of filming, she was 19 years old. And I mean, 19 is an adult, right? But it still makes me feel weird, you know, just like having that in mind in terms of, you know, who can be pressured into doing what kinds of roles and how how much they really have a say in it. I mean, I think you could argue that this could this movie couldn't be made the way it was if you didn't have somebody who was willing to show a lot of their body, but it's uh I don't know, it's just something I thought about. So a couple of points on that. First off, I want to say that you know, you or like anyone else anyone listening, if you're made uncomfortable by nudity in film, like I'm not trying to say like, well, get over it, you know, you got to deal with it. Uh, that's totally, you know, that's totally your thing. And that's a reasonable response. And people don't like watching like gory films. That's, you know, that's all you. The other point I think is that like you were saying, when she, the, the actress was 19, I don't want to make this statement like, oh, well, and I, I think this is, this is something that people lean back on a little bit too much. This idea that like people who expose themselves in any way, like, well, they wouldn't do that if they really knew what was going on or if they really, you know, were totally in control. I don't want to say that because I think that kind of detracts from people's autonomy, but I think your point is like really well taken because I can't imagine that a film set, particularly in 1964, would that really have been a place in which that actress could have, could have openly said without fear of repercussion in any way that she did not want to like, do this scene or that scene, right? I, I don't really know. And so I, I think, uh, to your point, I think it does it does make for some some pretty, like, uncomfortable viewing uh, for, that, for that fact alone. Okay. Um, the last thing that I wanted to talk about today, more in depth, was about the morality of this movie. So as we mentioned earlier, 
in this film, these are peasants who are struggling to survive as the ruling classes fight their wars, which really have nothing to do with them, right? Their lives would probably not change fundamentally. No matter who won, the only difference is that their lives are turned into turmoil because of all the fighting going on. Um, and we have to remember at this point that, so the the two women who are preying upon wandering folks who come through their grass field. Some of the people they prey upon are just regular soldiers, but some of them are also samurai. And we also have to remember that the samurai were upper class people in Japan, something like a knight in Western Europe, right? And so when they make victims out of these samurai, that's actually one of the few ways that they can take their anger out on somebody who's actually part of the nobility that is causing them so much suffering. Um, and I don't know that they, I mean, obviously they're preying on these people out of desperation, but maybe they get some satisfaction from making um, the nobility suffer in this way. You can interpret, I think, the the scars on the, on the older woman's face as once she takes the mask off as kind of being the ultimate result of ruling class warfare, right? War happens, so they can't farm, so they have to murder people. So this woman also has to depend on her daughter-in-law and feels threatened when the daughter-in-law might leave her. And so she does this mask thing. And at the end of the day, she winds up with a messed up face. And we don't know if she lives or dies at the end, right? And and so at, at the end of the day, whatever you know, choices, right or wrong, these individual characters might make, so much of their fate is out of their hands, right? Because of what's going on among the powers that be. So I wondered how we feel about the extensive bloodshed in this film and how much can we blame these characters for what it is that they do? I think kind of going back to how we were talking about the grass uh, being a, a kind of symbol of the flames of hell and this idea that all these people are kind of stuck in hell. I think the bloodshed is kind of a unnecessary element of that, right? Like it's necessary to communicate the amount of brutality that they have to live in. Otherwise, we create this this kind of floating safe space for the audience to kind of understand the facts of what they're doing, but not really the reality of it. And as far as blaming the characters for what they do, I don't really feel like you can blame them at all. Not to say that they couldn't be better people, but it strikes me that the majority of the message of this film is that it's a group of people who are stuck in this situ situation and they're all like, they're all trapped within the grass they're all in the same area and none of them none of them could really take any particular steps to escape it so regardless of their personal choices like their existence is going to be kind of hellish i saw another interpretation that said something like these characters can't escape their situation because of their evil deeds or something like that i think i'm getting it a little wrong but Something to that effect, and I just couldn't... That didn't really resonate with me, because what else were they supposed to do, right? We know in real life, when people are on the precipice of death, right? Like, they will literally resort to cannibalism, and these people haven't even gotten to that point. I mean, what does anybody think they would do if they were in this kind of situation, you know? And, like, they don't even have their... Um, the husband's gone, right? They don't even have him, 
what are they supposed to do? Oh, for sure. I mean, especially our protagonists uh, being women, right? Like that's so much of the um, the mother-in-law's concern is that like she she needs a male presence there because that, you, you know, like back in the day, right? That's how you get stuff done, right? Men, I think we can see this when Hachi is uh, earlier on in the film negotiating with a man who seems to have all the food and he has a much easier time of negotiating for more food and like trading for sake. And then when it's just the mother-in-law and her daughter-in-law, like they're really raked over the coals, right? They don't, there are no real options for them. Um, Okay, so related to the last topic we talked about in terms of nudity... Do you think any of the moral messaging from this movie gets lost because of that? I read one interpretation where somebody said that, you know, people go in and watch this movie and they just, like, see all the, like, kind of raw sexual energy and maybe miss the allusions to something that might have been more clear to an audience in 1964. If a 1964 audience sees this movie, they might be more easily able to see the the parallels with the bombing of Hiroshima, right? Where you have a lot of innocent people killed and injured because of what, you know, the powers that be are doing, right? And you can draw that parallel with this movie, but is does the all the sexual stuff take away from that messaging at all, do you think? Uh, maybe for some people. I don't know if this is kind of a case of like... MTV ruined my brain or something. Uh, but I, I didn't like, it's a very sexual film, but the, the nudity actually didn't stand out that much to me because I, I think for the most part, like kind of by contemporary standards, it's really not all that outrageous. I, I will say that as a 2020 American viewer of this film, the and and because when I watch these movies, I don't really do any research ahead of time. Like the parallels with Hiroshima were not didn't come to mind immediately, you know. Sure. So I think you got to consider too who the intended audience was. That about does it today. What do you have any final thoughts about this movie? Any comments on maybe the film techniques or the music or anything like that? Uh, well, a couple of brief things. First off, I, I meant to mention it earlier, but I forgot to. Uh, one of the, I think one of the influences of French New Wave here was specifically in the music. And in particular, the, the music here is very brief. So much of it is based on these like really dramatic stings of music, but there's not like a, a kind of through line of a score, right? So much of it is silent. And then we have these really loud, like bursts of soundtrack and then that disappears. And I think that's a, that's definitely something reminiscent of the French new wave, uh, as well as kind of the, um, the collision of diegetic and non-diegetic. So the scene in which Hachi is bringing the younger woman a fish while they're on the bank of the river. And she's, she's, I, I guess she's like drying her laundry and she's hitting it and she's hitting it with this, this, um, I guess some, some kind of club. And as she's doing that, it's very, uh, methodical and very rhythmic, right? So it's kind of creating a, a soundtrack out of what the diegetic audio, out of what's actually happening on screen. 
uh, which again strikes me as a very, very much like avant-garde for 1964. Another thing I wanted to mention about the slow motion here. First off, I think it looks great. I don't have a lot of input on it thematically, but I did want to say that there is actually, for those of you who might not know this, there are kind of two forms of slow motion, and one of them looks considerably better than the other. Slow motion here, what you see is very kind of very literal minded, right? Like it's the same image, just very, very slowed down, right? But we're still seeing all the same motion, the same like fidelity of image and everything. The reason for that is essentially because when they were making the film, they had predicted that they would want to use a slow motion sequence, right? So what that involves is actually running the film through the camera at a faster pace than than is normal. So film pace, typically, there are a lot of exceptions to this, but the standard is 24 frames per second, right? So when you're shooting a movie, typically you're going to be shooting at 24 frames per second. If you want slow motion, that means that you need more frames per second because it's going to be taking a longer time to get through an actual second of like filmed footage, right? So as opposed to shooting at 24, you would shoot at say 48 frames per second and then slow it down by half. And that way you get, again, the same fidelity, the same kind of amount of visual information, but at a slower pace. Uh, in a lot of films and television, a lot of times they don't necessarily intend to do slow motion beforehand, but then in post-production, in the editing process, they decide they want to do slow motion. And there, because they don't have that much information, because they only shot at 24 frames per second, what they'll effectively do is show the same frame twice in a row. Right. So in order to create that sense of kind of slowness and half speed, you have to use the same frames multiple times. And as a result, it, it creates more of a like staccato image. that's not as rich. No, it's like poor, poor quality filmmaking kind of or. Yeah, I would say that. But like a lot of the films I really love do that uh i think it's just it, it's just a sign that there was not anticipation of something they wanted to do when they got to post-production well i think that really does it for us today so my references have been peter bradshaw at the guardian brian eggert at deep focus review tvtropes.org which if you haven't been to that website has rather delightful information about a lot of TV and movies, and also Wikipedia. If you want to follow us on social media, we are Mayday Matinee on Twitter, Maybe Today Matinee on Facebook and Instagram, and Maybe Today Matinee on Patreon, where we are gradually introducing tiers if you want to go help us out over there. Also, by the way, if you want to give us a rating on your podcast app of choice, particularly Apple Podcasts, that is super, super helpful to us. Join us next week for the next film in our Halloween horror theme, 1932's Vampire. I'm Monica. I'm David. And this is Maybe Today Matinee. (laughs) 